So how, how would an alien culture or just anyone on this planet that doesn't know anything about Christianity, what would they think about our God based on how we treat people? You know, as, as Christians, there's a lot for us to be concerned about in this world. And there's lots of different ideas about how to engage these issues and how to fix these issues and, and all these kinds of things. We have, you know, we have weekly, sometimes even daily mass shootings at schools and, and businesses. We have environmental issues. We have you know, gay marriage, which sort of the, the hot-button topic of, you know, the so-called cultural wars. It's now the law of the land. And even more significantly is fully accepted in, in many churches. Terrorism, Al-Qaeda... ISIS, millions of refugees fleeing the Middle East because their cities have become war zones. They're being consumed by terror. We have economic issues, massive national debt. We have, you know, education in our public schools that people are very concerned about. You know, the quality of it, what's being taught. Um, you know, battles over those kinds of things. We have a presidential election coming up. It's over a year away, but we're already in the thick of it with with debates between candidates and plenty of fuel and ammunition for us to, you know, argue and, and debate and point out the, the wrong ideas, the, the behavior, the lies, the misstatements, even the hairstyle of the candidates that we don't like, right? You know, we're, you know, we're, we're all over that stuff. Um, within churches, there's theological debates, you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, there's Calvinists and non-Calvinists kind of beating each other up and, and different issues go on in different churches and all this stuff is going on. There's so many issues, but today I don't want to talk about any one particular of those issues. What I actually want to talk about is what does the Bible say about how we engage those issues, particularly with non-Christians? Because this is a huge issue. It's a critical critical concern because often the loudest voices in these debates are those that go to the opposite extremes of grace and truth. The ones on the on the far grace side, you know, they often, you know, they, they want people to feel good. They want to come across as loving and gentle and compassionate. And that's all great. But grace without truth leads to moral compromise and doctrinal compromise. And you see it all the time. But on the other extreme is truth without grace, where people are self-righteous and arrogant, and just kind of run over people. And they're bound and determined that you hear what they have to say and what the truth is, and they'll go to any extreme that, you know, they, they don't care about the people themselves. They just want to be right. And it will not be uncommon to hear them talk to people and call them stupid, liars, worse. And again, it happens all the time. And it's one thing when non-Christians do this, but it's far worse when as believers in Christ, we're supposed to be light in this world and supposed to represent Christ well. It's far worse when we engage in this. And yet, it happens often. It's almost like these two groups are serving two different gods, two different versions of Jesus. We're going to look at a passage today where the Apostle Paul basically puts on a clinic for us on how to engage difficult issues with non-Christians and to do it well, where both grace and truth are squarely in focus without either of the extremes where people are cared about and where truth is not compromised, and he does it just just in an expert way. And so if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 17, we're starting in verse, uh, in verse 16. 
Paul's on one of his, one of his missionary journeys, and he's actually in the city of Athens. Okay? And so starting in, in chapter 17, verse 16, it says, uh, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Okay? This is... In, you know, during the Roman Empire days, the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods were still very much in vogue. Not everyone believed in them, but many did. Um, Athens, their patron god or goddess was Athena, the goddess of wisdom. So wisdom and intelligence were highly valued and esteemed there in Athens. Um, that's why m- many of the famous philosophers congregated there or, or came from there. But idols to these Greek gods, you know, the ones that you're familiar with, you know, Zeus, uh, Apollo, um, you know, all these different gods, you know, they were all over the place, and they upset Paul. I mean, this was idol worship, you know, the whole second commandment thing about not making any, any false idols, it was all, all over the place, and, and it bothered him, it provoked him, it made him angry. And so he starts to talk to people about this, and first he does what Paul always did, he always went to the Jewish people first, and so in verse 17, you see this. He says, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler have to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he's talking to the Jewish people in their synagogues. And then he's branching out, because this is what Paul would do. He would go to the marketplace. He would go different places. And people were starting to talk about this guy who was talking about this this Jesus who had raised from the dead. And they they never really heard anything quite like this before. The Stoics and the Epicureans that that were mentioned there, um, these were not allies. Okay, These were philosophical adversaries. They weren't friends. But in Paul, they found someone that they were jointly curious about and wanted to figure out, what's this guy all about? What is he, what is he, really, what is he really, really doing? And so, uh, you know, so in verse 18, uh, they come to him. It says, it says uh, let's see, or rather verse 19, it says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So they want to find out more. They bring him to the Areopagus, which you actually see a picture of it up there. It's still there in Athens. Um, it's not quite as, uh, as as nice as it used to be. Um, after a few thousand years, but it's still there. Um, the Areopagus just means Ares rock. Ares was the, the Greek god of, of war, if you're familiar with uh, Greek mythology or the Percy Jackson series. Um, and, uh, you know, and in, in for the Romans, uh, they simply incorporated the Greek gods into their gods and gave them new names. So, so among the Romans, Ares was known as Mars. And so you have Mars Hill, and so this sermon is typically known as the Sermon on Mars Hill, even though it says Areopagus there in there in your in your text. So so Paul takes their invitation, he goes there, and what would you expect Paul to say? What would you expect? These idols bother him. There's these bunch of idolaters, you know, working these false gods all around him. He's in sort of the, the capital of this system. 
You might expect him to just lay into him, to call him a bunch of sinners and idolaters and, 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 just, and just tear into him. You know, and, and if they'd been Jews worshiping idols or Christians with idols, he might have just done just that. But these aren't people that know the real God. These are people who are completely lost and don't know what they're doing. And so Paul takes a very different tact that, again, is sort of a great example for us of how to engage non-Christians with tough issues. So how does he do it? How does he engage non-believers with both truth and grace? Well, ha- well, look how he starts. He doesn't, okay, he doesn't lay into him. It says, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. How does he start? He actually affirms something positive in them. It's fascinating. These bunch of pagan idolaters, he actually points out something positive, which is a great strategy. If you're going to tell someone something difficult, if you're going to confront them on an issue, it's always a good idea to start with something positive about them. Paul hasn't gone soft on the idols of the Greek gods, but he appreciates their devotion. And so then he goes from there and he says, you know, I've, I've observed your objects of worship and I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And so what you worship in ignorance, and he's not using ignorance as an insult the way we would normally use it today. He was using it in its true sense, which simply means out of lack of knowledge. It's not a put down, you know, he's not insulting their intelligence. It's just, you don't know who this God is that you don't worship, but I do. So what does he do besides affirming what is positive? He actually finds common ground with them. What can they agree on? You agree there's this God out there, there's some kind of God out there that you don't know. I happen to know about a God that you don't know about. So let me tell you about him. And he builds a bridge to the gospel with them. How can you build a bridge? How can you find common ground with those with whom you disagree? Those with whom you might not even naturally want to be around. Paul didn't naturally on his own want to be around you know, the Greek philosophers and, and the idol worshippers, but he did. He took their information and, and he engaged them well. What is this today? How could you find common ground with, say, a Muslim? Or a Mormon? Or someone who's gay and married? Or someone of the opposite political party of you? How could you find common ground? And how could you use that to build a relationship and actually use that as a bridge to the gospel? When I was in college, um, I became, in my first two weeks at Baylor, I became good friends with a guy named Cameron. Uh, Cameron's full name was Mohammed Cameron Aslam. He was the first Muslim I ever knew. We had a lot in common. We both liked Star Wars and Star Trek and all sorts of other geeky things like that. And uh, we got to know each other pretty well. Uh, we ended up rooming together our sophomore and junior years. And um, he went to church with me sometimes. We had lots of pretty intense and always respectful conversations about our faith. Um, I answered a lot of questions for him that he'd never really had answered from before. There were times where I really thought he was he was close to being 
uh, you know, to converting and, and placing his faith in Christ that, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and he was such a good friend that he actually became one of the groomsmen in my wedding. He's a doctor now. He does medical work all over the world. He's actually gone on Christian mission trips when they needed a doctor. Because he wants to help people. One of the greatest guys I've ever known. And, I was, and I'm always thankful for that relationship that we built on common ground, despite the fact that I, I, you know, I hate what he believes about God, and, I, and that grieves me greatly. It still does to this day. But we had something in common, and we became good friends over it. And I'm so glad that we did because it has protected my heart from so many of the stereotypes and negativity, you know, generalizations that we see about Muslims in our culture because I remember him, and I know that there's many out there like him. And we found common ground. That's what Paul does. He builds common ground, and he uses it to, for the gospel. And then he... And then he goes on from there. Look, look at verse 24 to 29. This is where he actually starts to challenge their ideas. But how does he do it? He challenges their ideas, but he does it without attacking the people. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his, ch- his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, or silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Paul totally attacks their system of belief. The entire idea of of an idol, of a God being, you know, being represented by stone, or silver, or gold, and that the God that that he believes in is so much bigger and and, and beyond all that. And, you know, and and so he he completely, you know, he, he directly assaults what they believe, but he doesn't attack them. He uses reason and he uses logic that they would have appreciated. And he dismantles what they believe without ever making them feel stupid or judged or under attack. And it's beautiful. A couple of years ago, we had a, a high school event. And after that, or at the end of that event, we had a time where the high school students could just kind of ask any questions they want about the Bible, faith, whatever. We do this every now and then. And someone asked a question about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and what they believe and how they believe differently from, from Christians. And, and so we talked about that for a few minutes. It was a good conversation. It was respectful. Um, you know, we just sort of outlined some of the, the major theological differences between us and Jehovah's Witnesses. And after we did that, a visitor to the group that, that most of us didn't know stood up and said, well, you know, actually my dad is a Jehovah's Witness and I go to church with him all the time and and I haven't heard most of that stuff. It was kind of awkward for, for a few seconds. But I was so thankful for the way we had handled that discussion beforehand, not knowing what that person's beliefs were, what their background was, because if we had, you know, we could have handled it very differently. We could have handled that question with, oh, it's just a stupid cult. They believe these crazy things. Can you believe anything anyone believes something so stupid? We could have handled it that way. And sometimes you hear things handled that way, but we didn't. And it opened the door to actually have a really good conversation with her about, you know, 
there are some pretty significant differences between those witnesses and, and, and us. And, and really, what probably, uh, of all the differences, what the key one is is that their belief in Jesus is different. They don't believe Jesus is God. They actually believe that Michael the Archangel and Jesus are one and the same person. And who Jesus is is absolutely, critically, fundamentally important to the Christian faith. And if you disagree on, on who and what he is, you've got a major difference. And we were able to talk about that, and it stayed respectful, and she didn't feel like she was under attack, and it was so good. That's how we engage people. That's how we challenge ideas without, without attacking them. You know, we can, we can talk about someone else's religion without calling them crazy or stupid. Because you know what? You never know who's listening. You don't know. You don't know who's overhearing your conversation or, or reading what you post on Facebook or anything. You don't know. You might, there might be someone around you who's struggling with homosexuality, with same-sex attraction. How do you talk about those things when you feel really comfortable and you don't feel like, you know, you feel like everyone around you agrees with what you think? Are you compassionate towards them? Are you kind? Are you respectful in the way you talk about them? Or do you make gay jokes? Do you use slurs about them? Do you belittle them, demean them, call them disgusting? How do we engage these people? How do we talk about these broader issues in a way that doesn't drive them away? Because here's the thing. I know, you know, just based on statistics, in a church our size, and even in a youth group our size, there are people struggling with that issue. And we want them to come to us. We want them to find, you know, love from us. Not without compromising the truth, but we want them to find a place where they can talk openly about these things without feeling like they're going to be run out of the building or that people are going to think that they're lesser people or disgusting or anything like that. But they're not going to feel that way if they hear us talking about them in ways that are not respectful. It's not going to happen. Pixar, the animation studio, made a video about four years ago of, of people who work for Pixar who, were, who are gay. And the title of the video was, It Gets Better. And one by one, they talked about the, you know, the humiliation and the struggle and, in some cases, the bullying or the abuse and, and the difficulties and the struggles they had growing up, feeling like they were different. And one by one, they talked about how as they got older and they found people who would accept them, who loved them, who embraced them for who they were. And they, and and they were telling you know, the young people watching that video, stick with it. It gets better. It was a message of hope. How can we as believers compete with that when people are going to naturally turn to where they feel loved and accepted? How do we compete with that? We do it by loving even better, while at the same time sharing the truth about what God says in a kind and compassionate way and walking with them through the hard stuff and not abandoning them. That's Christianity. That's what we have to do. Always be aware of what you post and what you say because you never know who needs to come to you or someone in this church for help who may not because of how they think you will view them. So, so Paul challenges them without attacking them. And notice what he says in First. Verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. What does Paul do? 
He quotes one of their own poets. What does this show? Paul knows very well their system and their culture. He knows what he's talking about. He is actually well-informed. And Paul would have been, because even though he was Jewish, he did not grow up in Israel. Um, he, you know, his parents were Roman citizens. He would have been very familiar with the Greek and Roman cultures and beliefs, just as familiar as he was with the Jewish, which is why he was the perfect apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's well-informed. He even spent some time walking around looking at all the idols, so he knew about the, you know, the idols of the unknown God and all that. He knew what he was talking about. He was well-informed. When we engage non-Christians in difficult issues, we have to be well-informed. We have to know what we're talking about, or we just need to not talk about it. Because, you know, friends, there's a massive amount of bad information out there. You know, today, is, you know, the age we're living in is called the age of information. Sometimes you could, it'd be more accurate to call it the age of misinformation. Because there's so much access to so much stuff that, even though there's lots of good information out there, there's lots of bad stuff out there that is just not true. And it is the temptation of every one of us to believe those that we think we agree with. And sometimes we do so, often we do so without, without questioning it. But that's so dangerous. A few years ago, actually several years ago, some of you will remember this, there was a, a news story, you know, Dan Rather, 60 Minutes, ran this news story on the war record of George W. Bush, kind of slamming it. And after that report ran, it came to light that the documents they used were actually not correct. They were not accurate. And it was a big deal. In fact, Dan Rather, this sort of icon of journalism, he stepped down shortly after that. And most of us who were alive then, we, we remember that. We remember, you know, hey, you know, this was totally false. And, you know, and because, you know, for most of us, we're on the other side of those issues from, from Dan Rather, we remember that. And, and, and we can point to that and say, look what the other side does. But we have to be really aware that the same things happen from our side, too. How many of you guys have, or in growth, have heard the story about NASA discovers Joshua's missing day through mathematical calculations and all this kind of stuff? Maybe you haven't, and that's fine. If you have, this was a story that I was told when I was growing up. It's actually not true. It didn't happen. How many of you guys have heard the story about the professor with a chalk challenging Christians in his class to... You know, to you know, at the end of at the end of the year, to if they still believe in God, to stand up, and if God could stop the chalk from breaking, he would throw it down, and if God could stop it, he was real. And a student stands up at the end of the semester, and the professor throws the chalk down, gets caught in his pants, rolls down, it didn't break, and he runs out of the room. Neat story. Didn't didn't happen. Um, more recently, how many of you have heard about the Harvard study that showed that? The more, that the more people that own firearms in a given area, the less, the lower the crime rate is in that given area. So it's been all over the internet lately. Guess what? There's no such study. There was a paper written that was not scientific, but there was no Harvard study like that that was done. All this misinformation is out there, and we just can't afford to trust what we are told without checking it based on our belief or our agreement with a person or even our trust in the person that shares it with us. Because when we're wrong about these things, it actually damages our witness. And there's several reasons that we have to be really careful about this. You know, one, sometimes people confuse satire for real information. Like this quote up here. This is pretty recent. 
uh, Carly uh, Fiorina. Uh, Columbus Day is not a time for us to dwell on the mistakes of the past. This is a, a holiday for us to celebrate exploration, discovery, and all those things that make our country great. If it were not for the historic voyages of Christopher Columbus, we would all be speaking Indian today and working in casinos. So a very offensive and not very educated uh, quote there. But guess what? She didn't say it. But it's all over the Internet. And people are reposting it as if she did. It didn't happen. It's actually from a satire news site that you know puts things together like that are intentionally not meant to be taken seriously. But someone someone saw it, didn't understand the context, and reposted it, and boom, it goes viral. It spreads like wildfire, and everyone, and, well, not everyone, but many people take it seriously when it was actually never meant to be taken seriously. Another reason we should, you know, that we need to be careful about our sources is sometimes people pass things on that they haven't checked out for themselves yet. Um, this happened in, uh, actually, that's, there we go. Um, this happened once when we were in North Carolina. There was a, um, this was when the Harry Potter books were coming out, the movies hadn't yet. And there was a story that actually ran in the Salisbury paper about an interview that J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, gave where she um, admitted that the Harry Potter books were a way to coax young people into witchcraft and devil worship. And so people got all upset, and there was an older pastor in town who emailed this out to everyone, all the churches, make them aware of it. It got talked about. Um, parents were, were really, you know, concerned about this, make sure their kids didn't read Harry Potter and all that kind of stuff. Guess what? Well, this story actually came from a website called The Onion. Um, that, again, was a satire website. But because this pastor had received it from someone that they trusted, and this pastor, who everyone respected, sent it out, it was taken unquestioned. Even the newspaper printed it. And, and it was false. So sometimes people just pass things on and they don't check. I've done that. Many of you have done that. But we've got to be so careful because it damages our witness. Sometimes people just make mistakes. This is the next one. Noah's Ark has been discovered. This has actually happened many, many times. Um, so far, not credibly. But there was one case in 2010 where a group uh, did an expedition up around Mount Ararat. They found, um, they actually claimed to have found wood and gone inside it and, and had all these pictures and everything. And, and so some, you know, even, even Fox News ran with this story for a little bit that maybe Noah's Ark has been found and all this kind of stuff. Well, it turns out it was a hoax. Not by the explorers, the expedition, but by local people that lived near there who figured out that they that the more people that came searching for Noah's Ark, the more money came into their economy. And um, and so they had brought some old wood and some different things up there and sort of made this this thing that um, to these people looked pretty convincing. And so they had fallen victim to a hoax. Okay? And, and this happens. You want to ch- check things out. Sometimes bad theology results in bad information. So we recognize this. This was here pretty recently. Uh, John Hagee, a uh, pastor here in Texas, uh, predicted these, these blood moons represented some kind of prophetic uh, thing that was going to happen. And September 28th, when the last you know, that, that eclipse was that we all saw, was going to be some kind of major occurrence in Israel. It was going to change the world and all this kind of stuff. And to nobody's shock, except for maybe some close followers, nothing has happened. Um, but, again... It spread all over the Internet. Lots of people actually did buy into it, and um, that happens. Sometimes bad theology results in bad information. And then there's even the more difficult things. Sometimes Christians say something that aren't even completely true. It's hard to accept. It's unfortunate. But uh, how many of you have ever told a lie? 
subject. Come on. Um, sometimes Christians say things that aren't completely true, either intentionally, non-intentionally, whatever, but sometimes it happens. Um, George Washington, it is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God in the Bible. Cool quote. It gets passed around the internet a lot. There's no record that he said it. There's another one. Um, Patrick Henry, the Constitution is not an instrument for the government to restrain the people. It is an instrument for the people to restrain the government, lest it tempt to dominate our lives and interests. Patrick Henry. Cool quote. Nothing wrong with agreeing with it. However, Patrick Henry, there's no actual record of him saying it. And actually, the Internet is full of these false quotations of founding fathers, you know, or later, you know, Ronald Reagan, whoever, saying things that go with what we believe, and so we post when we believe them, but there's actually no record of them having said them. Someone has made them up. Sometimes they're misattributed to the wrong person, but most of the time they're, they're completely made up. Um, here's one from Thomas Jefferson. It says, that government is best which governs the least because its people discipline themselves. Cool quote. We might even agree with it. But there's no record that Thomas Jefferson actually said it. There was a book published uh, just a few years ago called The Jefferson Lies by a, a guy named David Barton um, where he attempted to share the truth about Thomas Jefferson and how he's been twisted by, by liberals into believing all these different things about him. And he was going to set the record straight. Um, the problem was his title turned out to be very ironic because it contained tons and tons of false information, lots of these false quotes and lots of misrepresentations, lots of false facts. And it was so bad that it actually got voted by, by a history website the, the least credible history book in print. Second only to a book that had been out for about 30 years that was written from a liberal point of view that was also very skewed. This one was from the conservative side. And World Magazine ended up writing about this. Christianity Today wrote about it. Um, one of the professors at the Master's College, you know, John MacArthur's College uh, out in California, uh, they came out you know, to point out the problems in this book. There was a, you know, a, a circle of evangelical historical scholars that came out against it, um, one of which is actually Tom, Tom, Thomas Kidd, who's a professor at Baylor and an elder over at Highland Baptist Church here in town, coming out against this. And... Uh, there was a group of evangelical pastors in Cincinnati that, that boycotted the book. Eventually, Thomas Nelson, the publisher, was forced to uh, withdraw the book and take it out of print because it was so clear, you know, that these weren't, you know, liberal scholars attacking this book. These were conservative evangelicals saying this isn't right. But here's the problem: this guy, David Barton, he's still immensely popular. He appears on conservative radio shows all the time. And he's regularly quoted and, and looked to for historical advice from some of the people who are actually running for president of this country. And yet his view of history, as much as we, we might want to agree with it, is very skewed and based on a lot of falsehoods. And so, friends, we have to be so careful about what we say, what we quote, what we pass on as, as fact. And I've had to learn this the hard way. You know, I have taught things to youth in my early days as a youth pastor that I later found out were actually incorrect. Evidences that I've used for Christianity that I found out later were, were not true. And it grieved me because I know what James says about, you know, teachers, you know, having, having a stricter judgment. And I decided I was never again going to be fooled or, you know, by believing something that I had not checked out. And so I'm really, really careful now. And we have to be careful, too. 
Um, you guys remember the story of Daniel? You know, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. They're taken before King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're captured uh, from their country, and they're forced into his service, and um, they're forced to learn the Babylonian culture and language and literature and all this stuff. And, um, and, and they actually refuse the food because it's not, it doesn't go with their, with their faith, with their, their Jewish diet. And um, they ask for permission to, you know, to do without that. Um, they're given permission um, for a limited amount of time. And what happens is they actually become, uh, you know, they actually look better after that period of time than the others who are doing the same thing. And then at the end of that story, Nebuchadnezzar interviews them. And here's what he says. It says in Daniel 1, 19 and 20, it says, So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who are, who are in all his realm. We should be, as Christians, who value integrity, who want to be a good witness, we should be the most well-informed. We should be the most accurate with what we say. We should be the best researchers, the best historians, the best scientists. Because we value truth. And so, going from there, what does Paul do? After he, you know, he shows them that he's well informed, he, he makes his bridge to the gospel, he directs his focus to Jesus. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to, to men you know, that all men, uh, all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the focal point of everything that we're about. All these other issues that we debate and we get upset about, they have some importance. But if they compromise our ability to point people to Christ, we lose the whole battle. Because that's our goal. Paul's goal in life was to point people to maturity in Christ. And, that is, and if you're a believer in Christ, that is to be your goal as well. So he takes all these issues and he, and he, points, them, he points them right to Christ. Um, you know, don't let discussions about earthly things or even interpretations of Scripture cause you to lose your witness. Jesus is what we want to point people to. And if they don't know Christ... That's really the only thing that matters. Not you being right, not your point of view being heard, but that they know who Jesus is. So don't ruin your witness by how you handle other issues. And then at the end of this story, in Acts 17, uh, 32 and 33, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. He was mocked by some people. Some people believed, which is really cool. Some people mocked him, and that's fine. That's going to happen with us as well. Some people are going to mock us. But you know what the Bible says? Better to be, you know, to be persecuted for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. And, um, and so what does Paul do? He takes it just as we should. We can be loving, respectful, and kind, even if we're not treated that way. Just like Paul was. He just walked away. He let it go. We take it. Because our 
confidence is in Christ, not what people think of us. We don't have to prove anything about ourselves because we're pointing people to Him and our confidence and our identity is in Him. We can leave the conversations peacefully, leaving the door open for future conversation and relationship, which is the final point, and that is take every opportunity to build a relationship with the people. We see this in in John uh, chapter 4. Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman. We don't really have time to go into that whole passage, but he approaches the, the Samaritan who the Jews hated, didn't want to be around, considered them half-breeds and traitors. And Jesus made a point of sitting with her, talking with her, answering her questions, but always keeping the focus back on him, back on, on Jesus. He lets her know that he knows about her sins. She's had five husbands and is now living with a guy that's not her husband. That's fine. He's not intimidated by that. He's not disgusted by that. He, he shows her kindness. And he builds a relationship with her. And Paul uh, is actually invited back by these people to hear him again and allow the, the relationship to continue. Um, we'll close with this final story. Uh, a couple of years ago, you, you'll remember there was a, a big uh, national controversy regarding Chick-fil-A where uh, an organization... Uh, our news organization did an interview with Dan Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, um, and asked him about his views on marriage and, and homosexuality and that kind of thing. And when he explained that he believed what the Bible had, you know, what we'd always understood it to be taught for the last 3,000 years, um, people were somehow surprised by this. And, um, and we also were trying to boycott Chick-fil-A, and, and from the conservative side, people were trying to go to Chick-fil-A even more to show their support and you know, there's all sorts of, you know, this big war of words and people, you know, yelling at each other back and forth and all this kind of stuff. And in the midst of that, something really special happened. Dan Cathy actually called a guy named Shane Winmeyer. Shane Winmeyer is a gay man who leads an organization called Campus Pride who seeks to end discrimination against gay students on campuses, on college campuses. And he had actually been one of the ones boycotting Chick-fil-A. And so Dan Cathy calls him. And I just want to read to you some of what, what uh, Shane Winmeyer says about this encounter and the friendship they developed. He says, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind? Turn his lawyers on me? His questions and a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with Dan and representatives from Chick-fil-A. It was awkward at times, but always genuine and kind. It is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our community, and in our own families. Dan, Kathy, and I would, tr- would try together to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for us to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns. He was concerned about an incident last fall where a fraternity was tabling next to Chick-fil-A restaurant on campus, and whenever a gay student on campus would walk past the table, the fraternity would chant, We love Chick-fil-A, and they would shout anti-gay slurs at the student. Dan stopped first to, un- first to understand, not be understood. Through all this, Dan and I shared respectful and enduring com- communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness, even when I continued to directly question his public actions and funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. Our mutual hope was to find common ground, if possible, and to build respect no matter what. 
who learned about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. During our meetings, I came to see that Chick-fil-A was a brand was being used by both sides of the political debate around gay marriage. The repercussions of this was a deep division and polarization that was fueling feelings of hate on all sides. And throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know where I grew up, my, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than just a Christian. Dan expressed regret and a genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apology for his genuine beliefs about marriage. As Dan and I grew through mutual dialogue and respect, he invited me to be his personal guest on the New Year's Eve at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, and there's a picture of that up here. This was an event that Campus Pride and others had planned to protest. Had I been played, seduced into this billionaire's life? No. It was Dan who took a great risk in inviting me. He stood to face the ire of his conservative base and a potential boycott by being seen or photographed with an LGBT activist. He could have been portrayed as caving to the gay agenda by welcoming me. Instead, he stood next to me most of the night, putting respect ahead of fear. There we were on the sidelines, Dan, his wife, his family and friends, and I all enjoying the game. And that is why building a relationship with someone I thought I would never understand matters. You don't hear about those stories very often. But that's Christianity. That's how we engage lost people. Jesus did it, and he was known as a friend of sinners for it. We should be known as the same. There's a great Casting Crown song uh, called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And one of the refrains from it says, Nobody knows what we're for, only, only what we're against when we judge the wounded. Or if we put down our signs, our silver the lines, and love like you did. That's Christianity. And that's my encouragement to you today is to get involved in the life and the issues that are out there and do so with grace and love, like Paul did, like Jesus did, never compromising what is true, and yet still building relationships with people based on what you've got in common, based on mutual respect, and point them to Jesus, the Jesus that we all know who loves us. Someone once said that Jesus loves us and accepts us just as we are, but he loves us way too much to leave us there. And that's the balance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for Paul's example. And, and God, I just pray that we would, would rise to the challenge of, of not giving into hate and fear and disrespect, but that we would treat others like we would want to be treated, that we would be the ones to act first and to forgive first and to put compassion first, regardless of how people respond to us, and that we would would be seen by those who disagree with us as people of integrity, as people who, who have a genuine love for them, though we disagree on issues. And God, I pray that we would have that integrity and that love and that compassion in all that we say and do. God, help us to seek out the opportunities to get to know people and to, and to engage in a positive way and to point people to Christ in a way that they are not expecting. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.